So as Marla said, I am going to be sharing on goodness this morning. So I don't know if you all remember, but I'm sort of working through the fruit of the Spirit backwards. And so uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Um, And so we have done... um, I don't know that anybody but, um, but Vincent has actually heard all of these sermons. So... Um, besides me, of course, I, I have <laughs> I've heard all of them. So, um, um, but um, so far I have covered faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we're going to come to goodness today. Um, and the word "good" seems like a pretty generic word. Um, maybe it's a, a little bit like the word "nice." Um, so how are you today? And people say "good." Well, I don't know that they should say "good." Uh, they should probably say "well" because they mean feeling good. So if you want to say "feeling good," that's okay. But um, Good is a um, probably not the, the best word there, but you say good, people probably know what you mean. Um, but when I was in Sunday school as a child, I learned that um, there were two answers to every question, uh, one, of, one of two answers to every question I was asked. And those, those answers were be good or Jesus. And I just had to figure out which one was the right answer. And so, um, you know... You, you figured out pretty quickly which ones were Jesus and which ones were be good. And if you just answered one of those two things, you were right probably nine out of ten times. So, you know, uh, I guess I'm giving away Sunday school teaching secrets here. Uh, as you move up in grades, this, this does not actually hold true. So if you answer one of these two questions in ladies' class today or men's um, adult class, you're probably going to be wrong, but that's okay. You can try it. Um, and when children say be good, I think they mean just don't, like, you know, burn the house down or um, try to, you know, um, uh, be relatively quiet. Um, but what does the word goodness and the fruit of the Spirit mean? Um, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but there's a there's word, Greek word is apothesine, um, which means soaked with virtue. And it's an action word. It's not something that you just are, but it's something that you do. And obviously when we talk about fruit, this is something that's important. It's not just something that um, um, I think at times we feel like these are, these are words that we, um, that we say that just have sort of a, like, you know, it's our, our nature and so we just are that. Um, like I'm a man, I guess. Um, but this is something that you, you demonstrate by your actions. Um, having an upright character, full of integrity. The Bible also uses words like righteousness and uprightness as well. And it's important to remember that goodness not only applies to actions, but also to the motivations of those actions. And so often we um, humans do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's important to remember, too, that goodness is part of God's nature. Luke 18, 18 through 23 is the story of uh, the rich young ruler. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And just stop there for a second. You know, the, the word good here, you know, it, it seems like this is not the place for Jesus to start attacking the uh, rich young ruler. You know, he, he probably didn't think too much about using this word. Jesus was good. Well, actually, he was right. 
But Jesus wanted to know what the depth of this man's perception was. Did he understand that Jesus was as righteous as God, or was he just using the word generically like we often do? Jesus said, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he, that is the rich man, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And when I read this passage, there's a few things that are clear to me. First of all is that the ruler here did not have a high enough standard for what good meant. It wasn't a big deal for him to call Jesus good because he believed he was good too. He was saying, you know, Jesus, I think you're at least as good as me. Maybe a little better, but, you know, we're pretty much on an even playing field. But it's clear that Jesus had a different standard, a higher standard. It was appropriate for this ruler to call Jesus good because Jesus was perfect. And with Jesus' request of the man, Jesus revealed his heart, didn't he? At the least, this man's heart was divided. He was willing to act good as long as it didn't cost him too much. But he could not go all the way. And the point here is that we should be like Jesus. That means going all the way with him. Psalm 34 um, has the verse in it, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Um, and God does good, but he is also good. And we see this revealed in a number of different ways in Scripture. I'm just going to kind of run down through those. Uh, we see it in the gift of his son. That's probably the thing that comes first to our minds. So salvation, um, John 3:16, another verse verses, um, and his willingness to allow all to repent. So we see this in the book of Jonah when he allows the Assyrians to repent, even though they were very evil, terrible people. Acts 10, 34 and 35, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable with him. And we know that this was the time whenever the church was opened to the Gentiles. So up until this point, in order to become a Christian, you had to become Jewish first, and then you could become a Christian. So it was a, a two-step process, and, and Peter understood that there was something more. A third thing is that there's a placement of a hedge of protection about us, and this is not an absolute hedge, um, but it does mean that any dangers and hardships we experience are done within God's control. Um, and then... I've been thinking about this lately, the beauty of creation. So God could have made a totally utilitarian creation. He could have made something that just did the stuff it was supposed to. Um, and, um, you know, he could have made, well, I don't know, cows aren't the most prettiest thing, but, you know, he could have made cows a lot uglier and they still give plenty of milk and, and um, do the things that they're supposed to do. And, you know, we could all be, well, anyway... We could look around and we could see, you know, barren landscapes and, and terrible things. And yet we see that God created something that was wonderful, not only to be in, but also to see and to hear and just to be a part of it. And you read the song, The Beauty of the Earth, that writer of that song understood that just a little bit. 
And so we come to the place at the end of Matthew 5, verse 48. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this seems like an impossible task. How can we achieve this sort of, this, this goodness, this, um, this perfection that God has? God is righteous and good. And we aren't. And yet, that is what we're called to be. And it's important for us to understand that God's goodness is not only in times of blessing. Um, so, you know, sometimes we hear stories of somebody who's in a car accident and they get a CAT scan done and it discovers cancer at an early stage and we say, this is an example of God working just wonderfully to reveal that cancer to that person. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't have known until it was very far advanced and, you know, this is a miracle. That accident was a miracle. Or someone slept in and, um, and got to work late and, and there was a huge accident on the way. And they say, well, you know, clearly the reason why I overslept was because God was working with my alarm clock. And, you know, of course they overslept five other times that week. And, you know, it's, <laughs> they, were, they were late each time. So, you know, maybe that's not true. But this one time it was God's, God's hand working there. Um, but we understand that bad things do happen to God's people and he is still good. Um, in his commentary on Psalm 46, Charles Spurgeon wrote that God is good not because he causes things that seem or feel good to happen in our lives, but because in the midst of the storm, God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. Let me say that once more at the end of that. In the midst of the storm, God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. And if you've ever been in a storm, you understand that. It's not that the storm goes away, but there's someone standing there beside you. I thank my God for every storm that has wrecked me on the rock of Christ Jesus. And God is good even when we are going through hard times and we don't understand the reasons for them. So I wanted to look at two different stories um, that demonstrate people living out goodness in a, in a couple maybe similar ways. Um, and so these are, these are pretty familiar stories. I mean, hopefully everything in the Bible is familiar. So if I'm sharing something with you this morning that you've never read before, um, um, read your Bible more. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to be the case. So Luke 7, 1 through 10, we're going to read this um, and this is a story of a centurion who asked for healing for his, for his slave. So Luke 7, um, verses 1 through 10. After he, that is Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worth to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. 
But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And in many ways, the centurion was the opposite of the rich young ruler, wasn't he? He would not have called himself good if he had met Jesus, which he, he didn't even feel comfortable coming into Jesus' presence. This was out of respect for Jesus. Gentiles didn't go into the presence of the Jewish people if they were respectful, but, but more than that, he did not see himself as worthy. He was not somebody who wanted to have Jesus come into his house. My house, as nice as it is, is not worthy of the presence of the Master. He had given much to the Jewish people. He had built them a synagogue, wasn't something he had to do. Centurions weren't rich men. They were military men. Um, and so they, they had a decent salary, but he, he took the money that he had and he made use of it in something that was beneficial. And then we see that he loved his slaves. This, you know, we think of servants maybe like butlers and maids and things like that, but these were slaves. In the Roman Empire, a slave had no value except as they served a purpose, and, and yet the centurion was concerned about the health of this man. And very few people would have, even Jewish people would have felt this way about their slave. And so the centurion says, I am a servant under authority. You are the master. You are the master in this situation. You can send servants to do your will. Order me as my superiors would order me. And maybe that's part of the problem, is that the people who consider themselves good are the farthest away from achieving it. If you see yourself as the rich young ruler did, you're not going to be able to get the help you need. And on the other hand, if you see yourself like the centurion did, you are ready to enter the kingdom. The next story is the Good Samaritan. So this is in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 25 through 37. So just a few chapters later. And behold, a lawyer. So these lawyers were not um, lawyers in the sense that we talk about today suing people, but they were people who studied the law. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this was a common question, wasn't it? People kept asking Jesus, what am I supposed to do to live eternally? Uh, and he, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, 
and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, <clears throat> came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. It feels to me like if there's a story that exemplifies what goodness is, it is this story. And it begins with the question, what do we need to do to inherit, to receive eternal life? And lots of people... If you put all the... ...of what it means to follow our Jesus. Because I think each one of us struggle in different areas of our lives. For some of us, there are things that are very easy to give up and other things that we just struggle with. And somebody else might talk to us and say, well, what's the big deal about that thing? And yet they struggle with the things that we have an easy time with. And so if we came to Jesus, he would focus in on our sticky point, that thing that we do, that, that we're having a trouble giving up. And so Jesus answers here, he says, pretty simple, you just have to love God and love your neighbor, that's all. You do those two things and you're going to be fine. Um, and so this man isn't really happy with the answer, I guess, because he doesn't feel like, um, he doesn't feel like he's probably done a good enough job of loving his neighbor, and so he says, well, who is my neighbor? And this is the sort of thing that, that lawyers would argue about. They would argue about what it means to do work on the Sabbath. And they would break it down and they would say it means this and this and this, but not that. And so, you know, a Sabbath day journey was so far, but no farther. And if you were a Pharisee, if you were a lawyer, you had to break down exactly what everything meant in the law. And you can understand, you know, it's, you know, it's confusing. And, you know, what does it mean not to boil a kid in its mother's milk? Does that mean no cheeseburgers, or does that mean you can't have a milkshake with your meal? What, what does that mean? Um, so lawyers did all that kind of stuff. But Jesus is a little more practical here. And he starts with a man in need. This is a man who had been robbed. This was not an uncommon occurrence in their, those days. He had been traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a road that goes up. It winds through the mountains, and there were robbers that would lay in wait and they would take people's money, and they would um, and they would leave them for whoever found them. And so he had financial needs; they had robbed him. He had health needs; he was wounded and half dead. I don't, that's not a medical term, but you know you get the picture. Um, he needed transportation; he couldn't walk and had no donkey. Um, and he needed shelter. He was completely unprotected from the elements. And all of these are common needs that we see in the lives of people around us, aren't they? And if we can somehow meet a few of these needs that we see, um, maybe that's part of what this is saying. But this man is a, a Rorschach inkblot. So you've all maybe seen those pictures where like, um, there's a man named Rorschach that um, he would pour ink on, on little cards and he would show them to people. And what the people said about what they thought the, the ink blots looked like 
said more about the people than it did about the ink blots. The ink blots didn't look like anything, but they would say, oh, I see, uh, I see a dragon there, and I see a grandmother who's beating her son, and, and they could get all sorts of wonderful things out of what people said about this ink blot. And in the same way, when we look at this man, what we see about him says more about us than it says about this man. And our tendency when we see somebody in need is to judge people, to judge their worthiness to receive help based on their clothes, cleanliness, and even the families they come from. Uh, and often it's easier to come up with reasons why we don't help somebody than reasons why we do. So the first two travelers, we only know their titles. One was a Levite and one was a priest. So this says that they were religious. Um, and then the second thing we know about them is that they did not show compassion. And maybe if we were telling this story today, we would say a man was driving from Brookneal to Lynchburg. And he was in an accident and he was lying by the side of the road. And a Baptist drove by and he slowed down a little bit and looked out his window and he thought, looks to me like he should have a cell phone and he drove on by. And then a Mennonite drove by and he looked out his window and he thought, I know that man. He lives just around the corner. Surely he can make it home from here. And finally, a Mexican who was in the country illegally drove by and pulled over and picked the man up. And he looked in his wallet and he had $10. He thought to himself, $10 is more than I need tonight. I'm going to try to help this man. And he put the man in his back seat after he pushed a bunch of stuff over and he drove back to his wife and he said to his wife, we need to, we need to help this man. And that evening they spent time ministering to that man's needs. And obviously the story breaks down a little bit. That's not what you would do. But the Samaritan wasn't somebody that the Jews felt belonged in the country at all. They thought they should be out. They had been brought there by Assyrians years and years before. They weren't really following the law. And clearly Jesus chose the Samaritan to jolt the listeners. Think about this. Who is the man who's showing mercy here? It is not the religious person. It's not somebody who looks like you. It's somebody different. So what did the Samaritan do? He stopped. And maybe before he stopped, he had compassion. He saw someone in need. He had eyes that could see. And he did something for the man's wounds, he provided transportation, he let him ride his donkey, he paid for his hospital care at the inn, <clears throat> and he did all this without being asked and without the expectation of a reward. And this story finishes with Jesus saying, go and do likewise. And it is a heart issue, but it's also an action issue. It begins with our heart. If our heart is in the wrong place, we're never going to stop. But we have to listen to our heart too. So many times that we have the right heart and we just 
don't do the right thing. And we can come up with all the sorts of reasons why it's somebody else's issue, but at the end of the day, we need to be perfect like our Heavenly Father. So I'm going to run down just a bunch of things that I think are wrapped up in this, this word goodness. So what does this mean whenever, uh, when we think about this in our lives? And this is going to be fast, and it's probably not going to cover nearly all of it, but we'll do our best here. So the first thing is, let's be honest with ourselves about our motives. Proverbs 21, verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And quite simply, we are good at rationalizing the reasons why we do things and making them seem better than they are. So, you know, maybe we're doing something because uh, we want to help people, but maybe we're also doing it a little bit because we want other people to see us helping. Or we're afraid of what people said if we didn't help. You know, I mean, it's, I know there have been times whenever I was asked to do something, I'm like, well, I don't really want to do it, but I don't want to say no either, so I guess I'll just grit my teeth and do it. Uh, second thing is be a blessing without a reason. Matthew 5.44 but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors the same? Greet only your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles the same? And the point is not that we can't do things for our friends and family. We can, of course, you know, and, and I don't think Jesus is saying stop being nice to your friends and family. I mean, you know, I, I hope this morning you, you will shake hands with a few people and, and say some nice things to them. Uh, but don't just stop there. The point, of, the point of following Jesus is not to do the bare minimum. So, you know, so many times in, in our in our school of life, we go through life thinking about what the least thing I can do is to get by. Um, you know, and as, you know, I know that when I was a child, this sometimes happened, um, where my mother would set a task for me, and I would, um, I would not necessarily do it the very best of my ability, but I'd just get it done. And... Yeah, it's something that we should be able to say, I am going to do this to the best of my ability. Just thinking about this a little bit, I, I was, we were coming home from church one time in, in Indiana, and, um, and I, we ran into a flat tire in a little town called Ligoti, which is halfway between our church and home, and it was about 95 degrees. It always seems like bad things happen when it's like either dumping rain or hot, and um, anyway, we pulled into a gas station. I was trying to change the tire, and the lug nut, the, the wrench just wouldn't fit on the lug nuts, and I could not get the, the, um, the bolts off. And here I am in my church clothes, just really sweating them out, and, and a man pulled in. He didn't look like anything. He was certainly not a Mennonite. 
Um, and he had a, a bigger wrench that, that fit these um, in, his, um, in his truck. And he got out and he just sat there and um, got them off pretty quickly. Uh, he never told me his name. He never asked me for anything. But he really blessed me. And I just feel like, you know, that's the sort of thing that, um, that we're called to do. Um, a lot of different ways. Love the unlovely. This is the next thing. Um, so we look at the story of the Good Samaritan. This man who is bruised and beaten by the side of the road was not a pretty person. Um, hidden in the question of who is my neighbor is the idea that some of the Pharisees had that the only people you need to love are the righteous people. And I suppose this gave them an easy out because if they didn't want to help somebody, they really they had to do some background research and make sure they were worthy of that help. They, they had to check and see, you know, um, whether, whether they were be following the law as best as they could. Um, next thing is, minister in a way that does not demean other people and actually makes them feel valuable. And this is really hard. Um, so many people, if you offer them something, they will turn it down because they see it as charity. And people don't want to take charity. They'll say they're too proud to take charity. They don't want that. Matthew 7:12 says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so figuring out a way to minister to people's needs in such a way that doesn't make them feel less. Be selfless. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And part of being good is crucifying self. Our human nature just gets in the way of us blessing other people and ministering to their needs. When I think of what John the Baptist said whenever he heard that Jesus' crowds were getting bigger and John the Baptist's crowds were getting smaller. And John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he was speaking of Jesus' popularity, wasn't he? He was talking about the crowds and things like that. But I think we understand this as something inside of us. We must get smaller, and Jesus' place in our life must get bigger if we are to if we are to have the, the goodness that he desires. Next thing is be de- decisive. Um, don't wait to decide. Uh, often if you wait, the opportunity will be wasted. So Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And... So often I think we, we have to analyze everything and, and figure out if this is the right course and, you know, is this the right way to do it? And, you know, we're Mennonites. That's, that's what Mennonites do. And yet at the same time, that sometimes God just wants us to do something good without thinking about how we take in or anything else. Stand for the right. Um, and we know that Jesus was exhibiting good when he healed a man with a crippled um, hand on the Sabbath day, and also when he kicked the money changers out of the temple. So these are, these are not examples that we would think of necessarily. Um, 
And, and maybe this is where, you know, our bad motives would show up if we went into, like, a church that we thought wasn't preaching sound doctrine and we ran around the front of the church and shouted them down and said, you know, we don't appreciate the doctrine that you're sharing over the pulpit in this church. That, you know, that would just say more about our motives than it would say about, like, you know, how theologically accurate we are. Um, but I think, I think that the last year has revealed a lot of things about ourselves. Um, hopefully, as we dealt with COVID, we were willing to, to be kind to people and to minister to people's needs in an environment where many people were very scared of COVID. And I think how we shared with other people reveals something about our heart. Be willing to be misunderstood. Um, there are times that we will give um, or do something and other people will say it's bad stewardship or that we just haven't done the right thing in that situation. Um, and I thought of John 12:3. This is a story of uh, Mary. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and wiped his feet with her hair. <clears throat> the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Um, and, and certainly, you know, dumping expensive perfume on somebody uh, doesn't seem like a Mennonite thing to do, does it? I, I can't imagine uh, Mennonites buying expensive perfume, much less dumping it on somebody. Um, but Jesus made it clear that this gift was appreciated and understood as it was offered. And then goodness should be private. So Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And maybe this is tied up with motivation. Um, if we're keeping the things that we do private, secret, we're not going to be motivated by what other people think about it. Um, you know, and there's... Lots of wealthy people out there who create these big trusts and, and they give money away, but they're doing it for kind of ulterior motives. Um, and, you know, so often, if we keep something secret, um, even from the person that we're sharing with, there's an extra blessing there. So, just kind of Wrapping things up, we understand that God is good. Our goal is to be like him in every way, um, striving for perfection, striving to bless others in ways that point to God and not to ourselves. <clears throat> and I thought I'd finish up with a story of Kent Brantley. Um, so Kent Brantley, um, I think some of you all have heard his story or, or read about him, but um, I first met him when he was a medical student at Indiana University, and I remember that um, he came in with me 
um, to do a delivery in the middle of the night, and um, he got really lightheaded and had to sit down in the corner um, of the room um, so he didn't pass out. And he was really embarrassed because even then, he, his desire was um, to, um, to do medical missions, and, and he wanted to, to do C-sections and be able to do some operations. And, and so he had this, um, this kind of... Um, um, plan for his life and passing out during a delivery just wasn't part of that. Um, but, you know, you have to start someplace, right? Um, the students stayed with us when they were, um, when they were rotating um, there in Paoli and I remember he had a huge appetite. He just would eat like anybody's business. Uh, you know, we didn't have many leftovers when he was staying with us um, because he just he just cleaned them up, which was fine. I mean, you know. So after Kent finished his medical school, he went on to do a family medicine re residency and then did an OB fellowship in Fort Worth, Texas. And he and his wife chose to live very frugally in order that they could um, go to serve much faster. And after he was done with his training, he went to serve at a hospital in Liberia with Samaritan's Purse. And there he worked, taking care of people with tropical diseases, delivering babies, doing C-sections. And it was really hard work and really tiring. And then in 2014, there came an, an outbreak of Ebola. And he wrote a book about his experiences related to that um, and a little bit about his life before that. Um, Ebola did not start in Liberia, and he hoped beyond hope that it wouldn't spread to Liberia. Um, but it quickly did. It was a really stressful time. Um, and the whole country of Liberia only has about 50 doctors in the whole country to serve 5 million people. So, I mean, if you can imagine, um, you know, in, in the town of Brookneal, we have four providers. Well, they, they had 50 for the whole country. The hospitals were woefully understaffed and the Samaritan's Purse Hospital wasn't really well staffed and supplied either. And so Kent quickly um, ahead of time put into place protocols that he thought were going to keep their staff safe from Ebola. So people with Ebola are very, very sick. Um, they start off with fevers and then they develop dysentery and then as things progress their kidneys start to shut down and they just start bleeding and they eventually die. Um, and it was a really stressful time for them as people with Ebola started rolling into, into the um, capital of Liberia, Monrovia. And he said that of every patient that he had with Ebola, every single one but one died. There was one boy that survived. Every single other one died. And so as they're putting on this personal protective equipment, going in, just trying to be super, super careful, knowing that this is a deadly thing and that they don't want any of the staff to catch it. Um, and yet at the same time, they have patients coming into the ER who are um, running fevers and they don't know if they have malaria, or if they have Ebola or some other tropical disease. And they're working long, long hours trying to care for these people. And then one morning, Kent woke up and wasn't feeling himself. He knew that something wasn't right. The staff family had been sent back home. His wife and his um, children were back in the United States. And he thought, well, maybe I'm just getting malaria. People got malaria a lot there. There's mosquitoes all over the place. Um, he tried to take um, 
a prevention medicine for that, but he, he thought maybe he'd miss a, a day on that, and there's mosquitoes. And so anyway, uh, but he stayed away from work, and he called and said, you know, I'm just not feeling myself. And they came around, and they did an Ebola test on him. Uh, and it was negative. And he felt good about that. He said, well, let's start me on some malaria medicine. I'm sure that's what's going on. But as the week went by, he got sicker and sicker. And he knew all the symptoms of Ebola. He'd care for people with it. He'd watch people die with it. And they cared for him in his house. He tested positive for Ebola then. And day by day, they came in and they squeezed IV bags of fluids into his veins because they did not have pumps to run. They gave him all the medicine that they had, and they had very, very little. And he was getting weaker and weaker. Every day he would call his wife, and he, he could talk with her less and less because he was just so exhausted. And they were trying to figure out a way to life flight him out of the country. They couldn't do it because most, uh, most uh, life flying uh, flighting agencies had no interest in transporting someone with Ebola. And finally, the U.S. government got involved and said, well, well, we'll fly him back to the United States. But at this point, Kent was in very bad shape. His heart rate was running 160 beats a minute. He was breathing very, very quickly, like 50 times a minute. And, and he was on death's door. And he thought he was going to go see Jesus. And by God's grace, at that point, there was a, a medicine called ZMAP, which is an antibody, um, a monoclonal antibody, um, and he was given that, and it seemed to make a difference. He felt pretty terrible for about half an hour, and then he started to feel a little better. And they did fly him back to Emory in Atlanta, and he received, received advanced care, and he did survive. Um, and he decided in 2019 that he was going to go back to Africa. So in this intervening period of time he was trying to heal up he was trying to get back to himself and and decide what the next step for his family was and when they asked him why he was going back he said it's been five years of emotional healing and spiritual healing and growth I think we've grown and been equipped in ways during this five years that we were not before we went to Liberia as a doctor and a nurse, Amber, that's his wife, and I feel called to use our professional skills in service of people in need. We believe that God has placed a calling on our lives, and we've experienced that call as a threefold vision. And I think this is really important, to care for the poor, to have compassion for people in need, and to participate in the coming of God's kingdom on this earth to participate in his work of restoration, fixing the broken things of this world. We've been eager to return to this type of work in life ever since I recovered from Ebola. And we are thankful for the opportunity to go back, to be back in Africa again. And I like this. Maybe goodness starts with these three things. Care for the poor, compassion for those in need, and building the kingdom. And if we just get those three things right, a lot of other things are going to fall. The point is not that we are good, but that we need to be willing to push ourselves and allow God to work through us. And only then will we experience the fruit of the Spirit the way that God desires.